Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Generally speaking, when unemployment goes up, it's bad. But what happens when things are good? That is to say, when unemployment is very, very low. A new book, Moving the Needle, argues that a very specific set of things begins to happen when unemployment drops to and stays near record lows. Marginalized people gain a foothold in new jobs, wages rise, companies institute training programs, there's new perks, and these people entering the labor force might not get that opportunity otherwise. We'll explore what our current economic conditions are doing for the poor and consider whether the benefits of this current climate can be extended even as the Fed continues to try to cool off the economy. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The last time unemployment was as low as it has been recently, it was the 90s. A different time, even if Doc Martens are back. Those years are often remembered for the dot-com boom, but it was also a banner time for the working poor who saw their economic opportunities shoot up. That just happened to be when Catherine Newman, co-author of the new book Moving the Needle, was doing field work at Harlem fast food restaurants. She saw how the very low unemployment helped a wider variety of workers move up the economic ladder, and that time impressed upon her the idea that below a certain threshold of unemployment, things aren't just a little different. Instead, there's a real jump in how employers behave, and that has major consequences for the people at the bottom of our economy. So now we find ourselves in another period of very low unemployment, but this time with the highest inflation in decades. That's put pressure on the Federal Reserve to fulfill its mandate of price stability, which is to say pushing inflation down by raising rates. But the Fed has another piece to its remit, and that is maintaining, quote, maximum employment. How should our most powerful economic institution govern or attempt to govern the economy? This new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor, makes a powerful argument about how our economy should be run to maximize opportunity for the worst off among us. We're joined by the book's co-authors this morning. First, welcome to Catherine Newman, who's provost of the University of California System and a sociologist at UC Berkeley. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Alexis. We're also joined by Newman's longtime collaborator, Elizabeth Jacobs, a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise, which is a research to action network on jobs, workers, and mobility. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, Catherine Newman, logically... It seems like un low unemployment would be a good thing. But the argument in this book is a little bit different than that. It's that there's kind of a threshold, right, at 
a particular very low unemployment that really changes things for poor workers. That's exactly right. We find over the years, and we've studied about 70 of them, that when unemployment goes below about 4.5% and stays there for a period of time, ideally at least 18 months, you see very dramatic changes in who's able to get into the labor market and what kind of benefits in terms of rising wages and vacation pay and all kinds of other good things happen for them. At 4.5% and below, we see some very significant structural changes in who is able to participate in the great American jobs machine. Hmm. Like what kind of structural changes are we talking? Well, people who are usually excluded from the labor market altogether, people coming out of the prison system, people with very low education, um, often young black men, people who are usually at the bottom end of an employer's queue for desirable workers suddenly become incredibly desirable. Everybody wants them because they find they don't have the conventional choices. So they start searching more broadly for unusual sources of employment. And lo and behold, they often find those workers turn out to be very good bets. Hmm. They have strong track records. They stick to the jobs longer. They're more um, appreciative of having them in the first place. And so employers discover these new sources of workers, and uh, it's better for everybody. Yeah. Elizabeth, I know there's um, a lot of qualitative analysis and, you know, interviews with different people, you know, on the hiring manager side and and other things. But you also did some quantitative analysis for this book as well, kind of as the, the backbone of it. Yes. Um, so I think this book is in many ways the best of a mixed method study. We use 70 years of quantitative data. We use a data set that started way back in the 60s, looked at almost 20,000 American families and then followed them over time, followed their kids. So we now have really a pretty massive data set that lets us track people's employment histories over time. We merged all of those people's life stories or what the data tells us about their life stories. We merged that with local unemployment data so we could really contextualize those individuals in their local labor markets and look at what happens as the labor market kind of ebbs and flows. And what we saw was really consistent with the hypothesis that we started with, to Catherine's point, that tight labor markets matter a great deal. And they don't just matter in the moment. I think that's one of the most important things that we found coming out of the quantitative work. They matter in the moment, of course. People are more likely to be employed. They're more likely to see higher wages. Um, but they matter beyond the moment. And so even as a tight labor market starts to ebb, so long as an individual has had the opportunity to find work and keep work in a very tight labor market, as Catherine described, that means below 4.5%. So long as that tight labor market endures for 18 months or more, we see them holding on to those wage gains. We see them seeing less of a collapse when the labor market starts to fall apart around them. And we see them rebounding more quickly back into employment, more durable wage trajectories, which all adds up to a story, I think, of people really being able to get a handhold on the ladder and keep on climbing even when things go south, Mm -hmm. which inevitably, unfortunately, what goes up must come down even when it comes to the labor market. Um, The question is if, if we can keep it going for as long as possible, we see these really durable changes in people's lives. So, Catherine Newman, you know, this 4.5% threshold, I mean, that's kind of a, the, the empirical finding. Do you have like a, a working theory for like, what is it about that kind of threshold that causes this kind of step change in how employers start to search for employees? I think it's when employers start to feel the the stress of not being able to find the conventional workers that they're used to. They start seeing fewer applications in the inbox. Those indeed um, ads don't get the kind of response they're looking for. And all of a sudden, they can't fill their 
openings anymore. And so the first thing they do is start to ask their own employees, can you bring in other people? Do you know other people who are looking for work? They sort of exploit those networks and try to bring in people who who would be fully qualified. But when that taps out as well, uh, because everybody's basically finding work, they start thinking, yikes, I better look somewhere else because these conventional sources aren't working for me. And who did they turn to? Well, they often turn to what we call intermediaries or brokers, of which there are many out there. Some of them are nonprofit organizations that try to serve the employment needs of both workers and employers. Some of them are government agencies. For example, we spent a lot of time with the mayor's office in Boston, where the, most of the field work was done. And the mayor's office serves as a clearinghouse for people who are coming out of the prison system to help them find employment. There are neighborhood-based groups. There's all kinds of brokers out there. And there have been in large number ever since the 90s when welfare reform created a kind of spike in the development of these Mm. broker agencies. Um, But then they start doing lots of other things just to make their jobs more attractive. They raise wages. They provide uh, benefits that didn't used to be there. You mentioned that in the 1990s, I was studying fast food Mm -hmm. um, workers. Um, Today, fast food workers routinely receive uh, $15 an hour, vacation benefits, sick pay, college tuition benefits. I promise you there was nothing like that in Harlem or anywhere else in the United States under the Golden Arches. Mm -hmm. And today it's absolutely routine. And that's not because suddenly these employers woke up to their... um, moral obligations or had some change of heart, it's because they couldn't find the workers they were looking for unless they enhanced the quality of those jobs. They also create more internal labor market opportunities for job improvement, right? You can climb up the ladder faster because the ladders start to appear that didn't exist before. Mm. Most importantly, and I think this is often overlooked, employers start to invest more in training. And that matters because if they can't find the conventional labor force, they have to produce those skills internally. And they start providing people with training for licenses they don't have, or English language lessons, or just a thousand other ways, Excel spreadsheets that they train people who didn't have those skills walking in the front door. That makes those workers more valuable, more productive, and more easily able to jump ship to another employer who could offer an even better wage if they so desire. Elizabeth Jacobs, you know, people might be saying, well, you know, the $15 you kind of wage floor for most of these jobs now across most of the country and some of these perks from employers, that's really a result of sort of worker organizing. So how do you see, you know, these labor market conditions kind of intersecting with those labor uh, union and efforts? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, And I think they ran smack into each other. I don't think the changes that we've seen in the labor market and employer practice in this labor market could have happened without the organizing that's been behind things like the fight for 15 um, and a push for benefits, et cetera. I think that's really pointed in the right direction for many employers and the resistance to those kinds of um, proposals really weakens when all of a sudden employers' incentives are much more closely aligned with those of workers in terms of what workers have been asking for. So I think they're they're deeply related. Um, The question is how long they endure. And I think one of the things we've learned from American history is once you get to a new plateau place, it becomes a new normal, it becomes a new expectation. And so what I'd like to see on some of these things, um, what I'd hope to see and expect to see based on what we know from history, is that we've really set a new level, um, a new expectation of what 
a job should be and can be. Um, and we'll see if that lasts because many of these things are still happening thanks to employers' voluntary action. But things like the minimum wage, um, that $15 floor that you mentioned, that's pretty durable. I mean, we still haven't seen an increase in the federal minimum wage. There are plenty of things <laughs> that we could do We could do there. Um, so that's one, one point. And then the other quick point on this is that I think the wave of strike activity, the wave of worker organizing that we've seen in the context of this very tight labor market also makes a ton of sense because the underlying dynamic in a tight labor market really is a rebalancing of power between employers and workers because workers outstrip or jobs, workers out, workers, there are fewer workers than there are employers who've got jobs for them, which means um, which means that workers have some more power in their hands to say, hey, um, we want these jobs to look different. And so it is completely unsurprising, um, and I think a, a harbinger of good things for, for workers right now, that workers are more able to exercise their voice and power because they have more power relative to employers, because employers have recognized how desperately they need them. Mm. We're talking about how very low unemployment rates, the tight labor market, can help lift up the working poor. We're joined by the co-authors of a new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. We've got the co-authors, Elizabeth Jacobs, a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise, which is a research-to-action network. Is that a think tank, Elizabeth? Is that what we're talking here? So we're based at the Urban Institute, which was okay. one of the the nation's oldest, biggest think tanks, um, and we both think and do. Um, okay, so, got uh, it. My got one, it. Right. one qualifier there. Got it, got it. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by Catherine Newman, Provost and Executive Vice President of Academic Affairs for the University of California, and a, a sociologist, of course, who's taught Princeton and uh, now at the University of California, Berkeley. We'd love to hear from you. How has the tight labor market in the Bay Area allowed you to rejoin the workforce or move on to a better job? If you're an employer, have you had to change your recruiting or hiring tactics to get new workers? Have you expanded to different pools of workers that you hadn't previously used before? And will you keep those incentives and policies even if uh, the labor market softens a little bit? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. This labor market gotten you back in? Give us a call. 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are joined this morning by the co-authors of a new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor, about how very low unemployment rates can help move people up the 
job ladder or get them on it to begin with. Uh, the authors are Catherine Newman, provost and executive vice president of academic affairs at the University of California, as well as a sociologist, research sociologist. And we're also joined by Elizabeth Jacobs, uh, her co-author, a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise. Going to take some of your calls in the next hour. Has the tight labor market in the Bay Area allowed you to join the workforce or rejoin the workforce or move into a, a better job? What have you noticed about how different things are with employers? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or kqed forum. So there's a lot of good things that we were talking about earlier in the show that have happened as a result of this very tight labor market. And now we have seen inflation kind of rise and maybe begin to, to head back down. How do you see the Fed's behavior, you know, vis a vis the rates and the employment market, Catherine Newman? Well, you know, the Fed has only certain blunt tools at its uh, at its hands to address the inflation problem. And it is important to recognize that inflation is a problem, especially for people at the bottom end, because they have so much less to spend on products and food and whatnot, fuel um, to keep themselves together. But the sources of inflation um, are only modestly related to wages. They are related to supply chain problems and the war in Ukraine and energy prices and things like rent and uh, childcare expenses, which have relatively little to do with wage rates. So uh, that blunt tool can come down like a hammer on top of the very people who we're talking about this morning who have seen a historic opportunity to move ahead. And and threaten their claims to a decent, stable work life. We don't see how it helps anybody to see the uh, potentially stable careers of low-wage workers interrupted in order to cure inflation that has so many other sources. Instead, we think that it's critical to keep them on that upward mobility momentum side of life so that they can consolidate the gains that Uh, very strong labor markets provide for them. But I do fear that uh, eventually we may see that Fed action uh, bring this glorious labor market to to a halt. I have to say, so far, that has not been the case. Despite historic increases in interest rates, we actually haven't seen the unemployment numbers jump at all. Um, Which is fascinating. Yeah. Do you think that's just because there's sort of a lag built into, you know, Fed raises rates, then interest rates as a whole rise, and it it, takes a while for that to reach the labor market? It does does take a while, but at least in the past, it would have happened by now. Um, There are some underlying uh, sources, I think, here that, that matter for why tight labor markets continue. And they include everything from historically low birth rates that began in the year 2000 and have meant that we have a much smaller number of young people entering the labor market. It has a lot to do with having slammed the doors on immigration, which has 
typically been a way in which we expand our labor supply. It has to do with a phenomenon that we're seeing grow and which I think we only modestly understand, which is the more early departure of men in their late 50s from the labor market. Mm. That is something relatively new. Um, you put all those things together and we just actually have fewer workers um, entering the workforce relative to the job boom that has been extraordinary. So all of the attention to the layoffs in the dot-coms you know, the, that's happened, but those people have been reabsorbed pretty quickly. Uh, you don't see folks languishing on the edges of unemployment. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Jacobs says you've watched the statistics and you've seen the way the Fed is interpreting their mandate, which is kind of complicated because they have an inflation target. But then they have this sort of more vague sense of what it is to have maximum employment. How do you see things playing out if the rates continue to, you know, they keep raising rates and, and try and uh, push even harder? So I always answer questions about macro policy with the caveat that I am not a macro economist. <laughs> um, but I can give you my perspective based on what we've seen from both the data and the stories about people and what we've seen mm -hmm. happen in the past. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and I think that at a certain point, um, you know, we're, we will get lucky if we have a soft landing, but mm -hmm. even the soft landing involves throwing a lot of people out of work um, right. intentionally, right? This is, this is unemployment by design. Um, so I think that's definitely a possibility if the Fed keeps on pushing in this, this direction. Um, I also think it's possible that the dynamics, the underlying dynamics of how our economy works we just don't particularly understand, <laughs> right? Huh. And that's yeah, certainly- Yeah, it seems like this period is, not... is, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think when I talk to friends who are macroeconomists, whose life's work has been trying to figure out how to how to model and predict what happens in the economy, I think we're in a really interesting period in that, in that space where there's a lot of questioning about whether our underlying assumptions about um, how all of these things fit together and work actually hold anymore. Mm. I have no idea. Um, I really, I really don't know, and I, I don't think our our work can tell you anything about whether the Fed's idea is um, of of how they how they set interest rates and how that flows into the economy. Um, I don't think anyone actually actually knows. I think we've learned that actually a number of times based on what happened in the Great Recession. And I think if you ask any macroeconomist who is doing policy work, then they would say one thing that we learned is that we don't actually know the things that we thought we knew. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. we're still a little bit in what is an exciting, but also maybe a little bit of a, a scary time in terms of trying to recalibrate and understand what's happening in the economy. So bringing that back to our work, I think we look at the very real consequences of what happens when the macro context looks a certain way. Um, and my hope in terms of what the macro community can take from our work is understanding that, you know, the unemployment rate isn't just a headline number. Um, it's it's people. It describes people's lives um, and it describes people's lives and it describes potential durable either opportunity or an absence of opportunity, depending on how we decide to use that number and what, what kind of lives we put behind it. Let's uh, bring in some callers. Joseph in San Francisco, welcome. Hi, thanks. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was wondering. I'm I'm from a you know a low income rural rural family from Oregon, and over the pandemic, when there was this sort of boom in tech jobs, I was able to break into that. 
Um, but we're, you know, we're seeing now like there's these massive layoffs that I've only been at for a year and I'm kind of worried I'm, you know, I'm losing out. And I was curious if this is going to be kind of like a, something that, that, that crosses industries as sort of like boom and bust for, mm-hmm. um, job opportunities. That's so, so interesting. Catherine, do you want to take that one? Yes. And that's a very good point, Joseph. You know, um, we think that it's important to go underneath those national averages that we hear about them on, you know, particular Fridays of the month, what has happened to unemployment, but people don't live in national averages. They live in local contexts and the unemployment rate can vary tremendously. If you look at, you know, our Southern border, you will see border towns with extremely high unemployment. And if you look in, you know, the Northeast, you'll see infinitesimally small levels of unemployment. So understanding that local context really matters. And so does occupation or industry. So the tech system is going through a bit of a contraction right now, but you know, the experience that you've had in it will do you well, because there is booming opportunity in many other parts of, of industries that make use of the same skills. So we do need to understand this in occupationally specific ways and in regionally located ways. But what we've been able to show is that in regions that experience tight labor markets, very tight and for a very long time, you see some extraordinary impacts that do carry over. They carry over across occupations and they carry over across time. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Jacobs, uh, this one is coming to you. One of our listeners asked, you know, one issue in the Bay Area is that the ability to be mobile in the labor market is limited by housing and transportation. With BART down in terms of schedule or if you don't have a car, it's hard to take on one of those great paying jobs outside of your hometown. And housing, people can't afford to live in the city even with a $16 an hour minimum wage. So I'm not sure how a low unemployment rate was so great in this region because of housing and transportation issues. Yes, um, I appreciate that question. And it came up over and over again in our field work, that same constellation of concerns, the cost of housing, driving people out into spaces where transportation became difficult. So a couple things to think about. One, um, we found employers in our in our field work, a number of employers and intermediaries who were trying to solve for the transportation problem themselves um, by creating shuttle bus systems, by putting together carpools. That is not a durable, tenable solution. I think the answer here is that there's a real kind of public infrastructure investment that's necessary to allow for the broadest expansion of opportunity possible. And then the housing question is a huge one because the same places that see very tight labor markets, for example, the Bay Area, are also places that have incredibly expensive housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, you know, for folks who are eligible for public housing, people run smack into a trade-off between enhanced work and holding on to their housing um, mm. because of the earnings and assets uh, rules around around housing. But so you earn too the, much money, you lose Section 8 housing vouchers. or Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, we one of the things that we, we heard from the folks we spoke with and that we argue for in the book in terms of policy implications is really rethinking that cliff that we face people, put people on um, when they've gotten a handhold in the labor market and they want to keep on earning and progressing, um, allowing people to actually hold on to some of that support that made it possible for them to get a 
handhold in the labor market in the first place, mm-hmm. allowing them to hold on to that support a little bit longer so that they can amass the resources to ultimately become self-sufficient. Because at this point, even with better job quality, even with higher wages in the context of a tight labor market, we recognize and we see this all over the place, it doesn't come close to covering the cost of housing, even quote unquote affordable housing. People need far more support and runway in order to become truly self-sufficient. So that's a policy fix, certainly, um, that we could we could put in place. Um, and trust me, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., which is also an incredibly expensive housing market with an increasingly dysfunctional public transportation system. <laughs> um, not quite as not quite as bad as the Bay Areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see that I see that every day myself. Um, and it creates it creates real pressures. Yeah. We're talking about the effects of very low unemployment rates with the co-authors of a new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor, joined by Elizabeth Jacobs, Senior Fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise, and Catherine Newman, Provost and Executive Vice President of Academic Affairs at the University of California and a longtime sociologist. We'd love to hear from you. If you're, As an employer, have you had to change your recruiting or hiring techniques to find new workers? Are you going to be able to keep those incentives, you know, as the labor market here in the Bay Area changes? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Let's go to uh, Kevin in San Jose. Welcome. Hey, hey, how's it going? So I want to say that I feel the government should step up and help out more because um, it's kind of like they look at the company like they're the ones at fault when they're the ones making the rules. So maybe we can add, uh, Hmm. you know, more trust to AI to give us the information than politicians who just want to get elected. Hmm. Um, Thanks for that perspective, Kevin. You know, I, I, Catherine Newman, I want to throw this to you on what you see as the role of government kind of in these two phases, one when there's tight labor markets and one when we start to see slack. Does it change a lot in those two kind of conditions? Well, I think it should in some important ways. So let's first talk about when um, when things are tough. The safety net, which was born during the New Deal and you know for the last nearly 100 years, has helped Americans survive some of the worst downturns in our economic history, is absolutely crucial and must remain. Um, but there are other purposes that that safety net could mutate toward to become more of a springboard to create more durable opportunity for growth, economic growth, and the increase in assets among poor people so they have their own safety nets. And that's what we tend to shy away from because our benefit system is often constructed with this phantom um, worker in the back of their minds, uh, the person who's going to stop work instantly as soon as they don't absolutely have to. And, you know, I have searched high and low for that person and I can't find them anywhere. Mm-hmm. Most Americans are very, very glued and intentionally connected to the labor market. The proportion of Americans who have never worked is so tiny, it doesn't even it shouldn't even be on anybody's radar screen. Hmm. So the question is, what could our benefit system look like if it was more of a springboard and not just a safety net for hard times? And that goes back to the discussion Elizabeth raised about Section 8. So if, for example, you can enable a family to hold on to that benefit a little bit longer in their climb up the income ladder, they might be able to amass the kind of nest egg needed to buy their own house or to stabilize their own rental situation in a way that 
works for their families. Instead, what happens is that Section 8 rules force families to disband if their children start to earn enough that the household income now exceeds Section 8, but they can't afford a rental house in Boston, Mm -hmm. then they start splitting the family up, which is insane because what we really want is for families to be able to band together, pool their income, create an asset base that allows them to be more stable. So I think if you look at other countries, you see some lessons to be learned about a more relaxed view of what we call in the trade cliff effects. We, we stop pe- pushing people off the edge of the cliff and start to relax that a little bit in order to create more of a springboard. After all, those of us who've been lucky enough in our lives to uh, have the kind of resources it takes to buy a house, we have tremendous advantages in the federal tax code. We get to write off our mortgages. Since when does that become something that only people as affluent as Elizabeth and I are um, to benefit from a, a government policy? But our our poorer brethren don't get benefits like that that are now allow them to amass assets. I mean, it's one of the greatest things mm-hmm. that we have uh, in the tax code for those of us uh, affluent yeah. enough to benefit from it. Which we talked about with uh, Matthew Desmond, for those uh, who remember the, his new book, Poverty by America, talking about the sub- subsidy to middle class and above people um, in, our, in our tax code. Um, let me ask you this one, Elizabeth Jacobs. Uh, listener Art writes in to say, given the great economic gains achieved for low-income Americans, what are the best ways in which we could make low unemployment become a new normal in the U.S.? For example, could the Fed be required to make their goal prioritizing low unemployment over fighting inflation? And what other ways could we make low unemployment and ongoing, more permanent policy guiding the Fed and or other federal agencies? That's a great question. Um, And I think part of it is a Fed recalibration. I do think despite the language that the Fed is using now, there's also been a little bit more public pressure, I should say a lot more public pressure on the Fed to really lift up the full employment half of their mandate. There's plenty of additional space for that. So that's a great starting place. One of the things we talk about in the book and we've talked about some here, are how we might actually recreate some of the things that you see in tight labor markets, make those more durable features of the labor market, which I think would have feedback effects that would in turn lead to naturally lower unemployment rates. That's a hypothesis, not data tested, but I will say (laughs) that in the context of, for example, more consistent employment histories for the folks who are able to get a foothold in a tight labor market, the human capital that an individual who starts at the very bottom bottom of the the labor market that might have in a prior time not been seen as employable, take, for example, somebody who's recently out of of prison, um, comes back into the labor market, gets a foothold and is able to actually work consistently, they're going to become re-employable much, much, much more quickly Mm -hmm. um, in ways that I think are really powerful for the productivity of the economy as a whole, right? Because they've had a work history, they've had work experience, and they come back even after a blip as a quote-unquote better worker, more ready to work. Um, And in turn, I think that can lead to a very different dynamic in the labor market where we're not sort of shooting people out the door with with only, you know, a couple days of experience and then um, trying to get them back on the horse again after a long, Mm -hmm. a long time. Time off. Instead, we've got a much more stable, yeah. steady, and productive workforce. We're talking about the effects of very, very low unemployment rates with the co-authors of the new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Can Do for the Poor. Elizabeth Jacobs is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise, and Catherine Newman is a sociologist and provost at the University of California. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with the co-authors of the book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. That's Catherine Newman, provost and executive vice president of academic affairs at the University of California, as well as a sociologist at UC Berkeley. Uh, Elizabeth Jacobs, a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise, a research to action network on jobs, workers and mobility. Taking some of your calls too, both on on both sides of this uh, labor market here, how the tight labor market has allowed you to join the workforce or rejoin the workforce or move to a different job or better job, or as an employer, if you've had to change your recruiting or hiring strategies, um, and if you know the recent layoffs in the tech industry have changed anything for you around that, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email, of course, is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at KQED Forum. Let's go to uh, Catherine in Menlo Park. Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, I, I've been on both ends of the of the practice of hiring people who don't check all the boxes, and um, it, and it helped me um, growing up in a family that uh, couldn't afford to send us to college. And I started going to community college, and I started working, um, and I kind of entered tech through the back door in an office job, and then found. Um, that there was a career called technical writing. I took classes in it. And then um, in the 90s, the job market was very tight, and I got hired and promoted as a technical writer without a college degree. And um, I uh, made a big difference in my life um, and the trajectory of my my, uh, career. Um, And then I was able to turn around and... um, and hire people in who mm. who didn't check all the boxes um, and didn't necessarily have the experience or look like the other people in the office and um, gave them a, a leg up. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's what my a, yeah. Hey, what a great story and illustration of the kind of um, dynamics that I think the authors uh, of this book are talking about. Thank you so much, Catherine and Menlo Park. I mean, one question that comes out of that for me, Catherine Newman, is as People are drawn from this wider labor pool when you know uh, when job markets are are tight. Move up. Do you find evidence, or do we have you know maybe in the qualitative analysis that those people are more likely or more able to continue to look for unorthodox candidates because they themselves you know come from a, a wider variety of backgrounds? You know, we we didn't really study that, to be honest, and I think this would have to go on for a bit longer before we could see very many of those Catherines in Menlo Park. But I will say this. 
When labor markets are loose, when unemployment is high, we see employers ratchet up the credentialism game mm. and ask for more and more and more formal signals of someone's quality through college degrees. And, you know, as somebody who's a practicing university leader, of course, I'm happy to see that our degrees matter so much. But what we see in tight labor markets is the opposite. Employers start to say, you know, do I really need that master's degree in order to do this job? And lo and behold, no, you don't. Um, now, that said, it, so that opens up doors for people and provides an opportunity for people with skill and intelligence to just let it rip and do uh, do mm -hmm. what they can and, and become very valuable. But the other thing that happens, which is, I think, just almost magical, is you see employers start to invest in training people like Catherine, who came in without the credentials and then becomes, you know, a, a technical writer, which is a very difficult job that requires a lot of training and experience. But she got that training and experience on the job. Mm -hmm. And that is another way in which we can provide people with what we call human capital. And it is in some ways the very best human capital because it's ideally organized to benefit the firm that's providing it. They're training people for an actual job that needs to get done. But it also means that eventually Catherine could move on to a better job in another firm that might pay her more now that she's an experienced technical writer. And aren't we all better off if there are millions of people like her in the country who mm -hmm. can learn, benefit, and grow and get rewarded for it? Yeah. Um, I had two additional points. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, just to that point, I mean, I think one thing to note is we've seen policy changes over the last, really just in the last year in exactly this space. We've seen mm -hmm. the state of Maryland and the state of Pennsylvania for state jobs um, to take away degree requirements entirely and move mm -hmm. to a skill-based hiring um, system. And we've seen immense efforts on the employer side, the Business Roundtable, for example, which is a, an association of um, the nation's largest companies, are working really hard to try and figure out how do we actually make skills-based hiring um, something that we can, can be endurable, that can be durable. How do we quantify what skills we need? How do we measure for them so that we can continue to actually hire? I think all of that has been driven by the labor market dynamics, but things have changed in a very meaningful way. And what I'm hopeful about going forward is that particularly given what many businesses are trying to figure out right now and where there's substantial resources going is that they could actually figure it out um, in a way that becomes more durable and doesn't mean that when the labor market inevitably contracts, we slide back to where we've been before. Now, the existing evidence suggests, as Catherine said, that as soon as the labor market goes slack, employers start defaulting back to their traditional credentials. But if they've had not only the experience, the successful experience bringing folks in, but have also figured out how to do that in a way that they see is, is rigorous, is workable, is much more racially equitable, because we know that there are major racial gaps in terms of who's able to have those traditional degrees for a variety of reasons that you could do a whole nother show about. <laughs> um, but if if employers have actually created durable practices, it becomes a lot more difficult, I think, to unravel that, particularly in the context of wanting to actually open up our opportunity and bring in some of those non-traditional, creative, diverse perspectives that actually make for higher productivity in workplaces ultimately. Let's bring in a couple of questions on the stats themselves. Uh, Barry in San Francisco, welcome. Hello. Hey, Barry, you're on. Hey, uh, thanks for letting me speak. Uh, thanks for running the program on this topic today. I just wanted to ask the speakers if they could comment on what I've always understood, which is 
aren't statistics based on people who've been unemployed for six months? Is it not true that people who've been unemployed for longer than six months are essentially dropped from the numbers? So if somebody has been unemployed for greater than six months, they're no longer included. So in a way, the national statistics are artificial, that it's actually an artificially depressed number. Is this not true? And I'll take my answer off, off the air. Thank you. Barry, I know you two have great answers to this. I want to um, stack Martin in here too uh, in Benicia, and then we'll we'll take these two together. Welcome. Hello, hello. Hey, Martin. This is Martin. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You're on the air. Okay. Well, um, I was involved in staffing petrochemical projects all over the country for the better part of 20 years, and during the whole time. Uh, I'd listen to the radio on work, usually the KQED. Yay. <laughs> Thank and, you. And <laughs> um, we would uh, hear discussions about labor statistics. And I looked at my crazy industry where there's, um, you know, 50 viable companies contracting for um, project-specific work. Sometimes it's uh, on a cycle that's planned. The East Coast is different than the West Coast, those cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes there are emergency responses. How can they possibly be tracked in statistics? Because they're in, they're out, they're off their um, Mm -hmm. uh, medical insurance and then back on it the next time they go to work. Uh, In and out of the industry uh, being accounted for, how how could that even be? Yeah, Martin, it's such a it's such a good point. And Elizabeth Jacobs, I know that this is something that you're very fired up about, that this is sort of the first kind of generation that might get a chance to try and have these much more complex measures of unemployment. Um, I, I, I appreciate, appreciate, appreciate you noting my fired upness about it. And I am, so I've, um, I'll, I can take the first question and then I can take a, a stab at the, the second one. Cause the first question, there's a, a very clear answer and the unemployment rate, so long as someone is actively looking for work, um, and not employed, they're counted as unemployed. Now there are other measures of unemployment that get kind of under the hood and ask questions about, for example, have you been out of work for more than six months and looking for work? And then there are certainly folks who have dropped out of the labor force entirely. We go into great depth um, early on in the book, tracking all of those indicators and ultimately land back on the unemployment rate because the the indicators all move in the same direction. And we needed to pick something um, to use as kind of that flagship um, indicator to organize the research. Um, so that's that's question number one. Can question I follow up really two? quickly on that? Sure. Only because oh, yeah. one of the things that I found fascinating is like this threshold you found, you know, just to return to the top of four and a half percent unemployment. When it gets below yeah. that, things start to change. What I found really interesting is labor force participation, right? This is like the percentage of people who are working, who are of working age. Um, we're just kind of, we're still below what it was, you know, in 2005, right? Yep. Um, but that's yep. actually not what's driving these dynamics, which I, I find totally fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, honestly, there's so much more <laughs> that mm-hmm. we have, more work that we have left to do. And so um, the book, I think, is in some ways a first word when it comes to this interaction sure. as opposed to a last. That said, um, labor force participation, obviously, it has something to do with labor market tightness, because if people's willingness to work is depressed because the work out there just isn't worth doing, because it doesn't pay enough, because it doesn't have the benefits, then you're going to see different dynamics than you are when the 
labor market actually starts to look more appealing, um, you're going to see the unemployment rate actually artificially start to creep up. That's what we see at the end of um, or kind of the beginning of many recoveries. And so I think there are plenty of open open questions there. But the longer term dynamics around labor force participation, the things that are really driving, at least through um, through COVID, I think there's some open questions now. But the driving force behind labor force participation rates, uh, many of them are really kind of demographic structural trends mm. that I think we can actually set aside when we're looking at um, the kind of quote unquote pure dynamics that we're talking about got that it. come from the business cycle. Got it. Got it. Um, and in terms of being able to track, you know, the kinds of unemployment that I'm going to kind of add a little bit to Martin's question, which is there has been this big change in the way that people work in the sense that there's also the Ubers and there's the gig jobs. You know, one listener writes in to say many people have two to three jobs with no benefits, which is not the same as a permanent job that pays enough to live on with sick pay and pension is in the past. They're employed, but it's not stable employment. And so that's kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of touching on all these ways in which a job is not necessarily a job and what the unemployment rate measures is like if you have a job. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think <laughs> my answer is basically a yes to that. I would say that like, is, is a job, what is a job, right? Like to your point of is driving, is driving for Uber is, um, is, doing platform work where you're paid as a 1099 worker is piecing together multiple part-time jobs. That's still a job. It's still it's still work. It's still labor force participation. You're not unemployed. You're earning. Um, so I think that those folks do show up in the data. Um, it's it's not impossible to track them. We have national statistics that are able to track folks. They're able to track earnings. Um, same thing in the the national data source that that we use. So I think. Um, I think those folks do show up in our data. It's not an orthogonal story. On the other hand, I think the future of what works looks what works looks looks like, how folks are putting together work, what they want to be doing, as opposed to what's available to them that they have to do to to make a living. I think that's evolving, um, but I don't think that this um, labor market story fundamentally changes mm. the the underlying dynamics that we see um, where workers have a little bit more power. Employers have different incentives. The need to actually put together better jobs. If you're an employer who has full-time hours for someone, that you're more likely to give them those full-time hours rather than split it up across multiple people if you've got multiple full-time jobs that you're looking to fill. Um, mm. And so I think it, it remains to be seen given the new structures of work that we see going forward. And I know that's something that's of particular interest to folks in, in the Bay Area where this um, is in sort of some ways yeah. the, the home of all of the technology that's driving a lot of this. Um, but I'd the like to add to this if I could. Work. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Because um, there's another point that I think you're – your listeners will find interesting. And that is we've seen some interesting and important experiments in social policy brought on by the pandemic, but also learned from looking at the experience of other countries and how they react to downturns that I think are critical. So for example, during COVID, we increased the child allowance um, through the federal tax code and almost overnight lifted one third of the nation's poor children out of poverty. That is an extraordinary accomplishment in a short time. And it tells us we know how to do something. Of course, Um, then we didn't extend it. (laughs) Well, I think we ought to rethink that. You know, if we wanted to think about what the long-term consequences are of taking children out of poverty, we know that they're more likely to complete a high school education. We know that they're more likely to be earning. They are less likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. There are all kinds of benefits that that accrue to a country that prevents children from falling into poverty. But the second point I would make relevant to your last caller is that 
We learned from the European experience that if we pay employers, if we help employers keep their payrolls going, even when they lose business and would otherwise shut down, they hold on to those employees. And then when business begins to revive, the workforce is in place rather than have to go through this matching process that has proven so difficult in tight mm. labor markets. That is something we learned from the European social democracies who have worked harder than we have typically to smooth out the consequences of these massive downturns. I am pretty sure that one of the reasons why we snapped back to very low unemployment after what was an incredibly deep recession during COVID is that more people were kept on the payroll and were therefore ready to go when businesses began to revive. So, you know, there's a learning process out there mm -hmm. and government learns and private employers learns and workers learn. And we've learned some lessons if what we care about is the long-term health of the American economy and its people. Yeah. If what we really want to see is that poor workers don't stay poor, we've learned a lot about how that comes about. And instead of throwing those lessons away uh, in this fight against inflation, we should pay some attention to what it is we're trying to achieve over the long run and how that durable increase in human capital that comes from being persistently in the labor market benefits not only workers, but all the rest of us. They don't need Medicaid as much. They don't need SNAP as much. They are able to take care of themselves better. And isn't that really what we want mm -hmm. in the long run? Tight labor markets and the conditions that mimic it through these policies can help make that a reality. You know, one uh, final kind of question for you, and I know we're only going to be able to like just briefly glance at this, but, you know, one other response of companies to this tight labor market, you know, if you walk into a fast food restaurant now, there's fewer workers there. There's a kiosk. There's all these things. So there's these jobs that traditionally hadn't been seen as targets for automation. Do you see that as a possible sort of countervailing force to this kind of like rising leverage that workers have? You know, potentially that's the case. Um, and there, we do say in the book, there are two topics we weren't able to give fulsome attention to. One is automation and the other is immigration, both of which are important potential safety valves, if you will, or that can dismantle tight labor markets. But uh, the first thing we know is that automation tends not to actually um, reduce employment. It changes the nature of the jobs needed. And that's why training is important. That's why upskilling matters. We don't see in aggregate job loss, but we see differences in who has the jobs and what skills they need. So you're right. In those fast food joints that I used to study in the 90s, you now have kiosks where you can enter your food order. Uh, but now we need people who know how to fix those uh, programs when they break down and how to guide customers through uh, what looks like a bewildering menu format. And so it changes the kinds of jobs and in mm. general upskills the jobs that we need mm. to have. Mm. But for those workers who lost employment, they need training opportunities. Yeah. We have been talking about the effects of very low unemployment rates with the co-authors of a new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. That's Catherine Newman and Elizabeth Jacobs. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine and Elizabeth. Thank you for having us. It's been Thanks a joy. Thanks for having us, Alexis. It's been fantastic. Thanks also to our listeners and everyone who joined us for this conversation. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.